Good, I'm asking for your attention, some uh, practical stuff regarding our exercise, our path, our contemplative undertaking. The theme of this part of our retreat is clearly establishing a relationship to body. Now, we have notions of body. Um, and these notions have a charge. So it is important that you understand that underneath the label of body, uh, there is quite a variety of experiences possible. So obviously a body when looked at in a mirror is one type of body, and the body when um, visited and inhabited in a conscious way when you're sitting with closed eyes on your cushion is a very different type of experience. So it is important that you learn varieties of body in your own uh, contemplative vocabulary. So there is uh, rupa as the object that stands out in the visual field. This is what we generally pick up on other people's bodies first. You know? We see the rupa aspect, the reification aspect of their appearance in as visual objects in our sense field of seeing. Um, but when it comes down to meeting our own somatic nature, our own embodied reality, then this rupa aspect is actually quite far away. What we feel of the body is felt. We experience the body as a range of felt qualities. Some of those felt qualities are tactile. That's when your skin is involved. That's where contact with the so-called outside world takes place. But particularly the sense organ of the skin is involved with that. That includes things like temperature, touch, contact, pressure, warmth. All this is to do with skin. Skin does a number of things. Maybe we have neurologists in here who could exactly spell out how many differing sense qualities skin is capable of picking up, humidity, uh, you know, electric resistance. Skin does an immense amount of stuff. We conveniently lump that into uh, the body, which is a polite but slightly reductionist way of referring to a variety of somatic experiences. So I'm interested in you developing a relationship to this, rather trying to get beyond this, or trying to get this as nice as possible, or trying to get this narrowed down to a little object whereby you can then stabilize your mind on or so. So before we do any of this, I'm interested in you having a relationship to your embodied experience. I don't trust any sort of samadhi unless it is on the clear foundation of a willing and skilled relationship to the embodied dimension of your uh, yeah, physical presence. That is important. That means, for example, I'd be interested in you establishing a vocabulary of where certain things in the body are felt, yeah? where you feel fear, where you feel joy, where you feel energized, where you feel that you're tired, where do you feel when it gets drowsy, yeah? And I like to encourage you to actually start building up a familiarity with the sensations of the body 
in particular states of mind, in particular states of the heart. There are strong correlations, as, as clearly spelled out in the beginning, that the, the, the paradigm of these satipatthanas basically says, every event in my experience, all of your experiences, have these four dimensions. They have a somatic, they have a hedonic, they have an affective, they have a cognitive dimension. Now, most of the time, we're not aware of most of these dimensions. We're fixated on one particular dimension. If it tastes good, we're fixated on the Vedana dimension, not so much on the embodied feeling. Maybe it's inviting to know where it tastes good. Yeah? When something starts blooming into the fullness of your palate, yeah? then you recognize, oh yeah, there's a localization to that feeling good. It's a developmental achievement to find out which particular sense feels good. Little babies don't know that. They take several weeks and months to actually figure out the feeling good and the specific sense channel in which feels good. Yeah. I trust most of us have completed that procedure in development. <laughs> yeah. So let us not be simplistic about body. Let's not consider body as something to get beyond so that we can really get going in samadhi. Obviously, your experience of body changes when the stillness of mind increases. Yeah. Nevertheless, uh, there is a body component in your experience for quite a stretch of your practice. And it's something you keep coming back to. So I'm interested in you inhabiting your bodies. I'm interested in learning some of the ways you relate to body. I'm interested in, in, in you learning how you conceptualize your experience when it comes to bodily experience. There are a few magic things about bodies. Bodies tell us a lot about upeka. A mind can not really hold two contradictory ideas at the same time. You know, that's what minds not do well. Bodies can have complete contradictory experience at the same time. You know? In the front, it can feel warm when you're sitting at the campfire, and the back, it can be freezing. That's quite possible at the same moment to do a totally different experience in apparently the same bodies. So bodies tell us a lot about uh, contradictory aspects in the nature of our experience and how easily they can reconcile that. You can have a soft and warm belly and a stiff shoulder. So if we're in the body with our awareness, and I mean a dexterous awareness, not a fixated awareness, not just the body as a samatha object, but the body as a temple. You see, before, before freedom beckons, we have to arrive here. This practice is not about getting out. It's about arriving here completely. That is what mindfulness is. It's the fullness of the presence of mind for that which is here. That's the clear and powerful and transformative message of early Buddhism. Um, you know, transformation and transcendence occurs when we completely arrive at the imminent, at that which is here, when we completely meet the lakanas, the characteristics, when we completely meet, understand and reconcile with impermanence, with condi uh, conditionality, with impersonality. Then, and only then, the gates of freedom beckon, or we walk through these respective gates. Um, so that means uh, meeting the body is a way of meeting my 
condition. The Akinjino condition, less its label, is met with in its embodied form. There are some dramatic things also happening. If I pay attention to the somatic component of my breathing, then this is one of the most powerful ways that mind can be stilled. If I just pay attention to the concept of breathing, the mind may still get in some way still, but the transformative effect is a lot less powerful. It is not the concept of breathing as an object of samadhi, which makes my mind and my body, in fact, relax, calm down, release my cortison uh, releases and so forth. It is the attention connecting with the felt dimension of experience. So, if you experience uh, various moods, states, as is to be expected, shifts in those states, often when we leave a place, when we, um, when a bell rings, when we um, change from inside to outside or back, often such moments of transition give us a good perspective on inner states, inner qualities. And, and let us keep asking, where in the body do I feel this? When I think of Peter, where in the body does it feel warm? When I think of um, something that makes me afraid, where in the body do I feel the fear? Where in the body do I feel um, joy? Where do, in the body do I feel anxiety? Where in the body do I feel control? Whatever you identify as a quality of mind, and we're going to do a lot more of this in days to come, ask yourself, what is the bodily locus of this experience? Maybe there you can't find one. Some of them are too subtle. But often enough, we can find. We know a variety of things. It's shame that reddens our cheeks, isn't it? It's the fear that gnaws in our gut. It's... Uh, it's the anger that wells up my throat. It's, you know, we know our language has a lot of ways to refer to the somatic dimension of our other, of our emotional and cognitive lives. So consider how that is for you. I would like you to also pay particular attention today in your mindfulness of breathing now. Um, these four phases a four phases, the arising, the increase or the intensification, the decrease, the, the ebbing away and the disappearance of sensations of breathing. If you can, try to, rather than just to hold a place in your body, which I hope you have identified an anchor for your attention, generally it's belly, chest, nose, uh, obviously, if you have chosen to nose the spaces, you can actually expand that place of attention is somewhat limited, but um, still this is a, an excellent place to attend to the sensations of breathing. If the space is in your chest or in your belly, uh, try to start off, make that area clear to yourself. It is important that you clarify your plan A, your task, and part of that task is identifying roughly the area in which you feel the body. So be clear. 
Much is won and much is lost if that clarity isn't there. You invite a host of hindrances if clarity isn't there in your meditative task. Sleepiness to start with, but also doubt and distractions. You're an easier um, prey. You're an you're an easier prey when you um, when you're not clear what you're actually doing. So identify the area of your anchor. That's where you keep returning to, and do hold that anchor. Do not. Don't switch from metta to anapanasati at the nose, to the belly, to contemplating the virtues of the Buddha. Don't do this. Even if by chance this works, you don't know what exactly has done the job. The power in meditation, as in science, is you want to operationalize this procedure so that you know what you have done when things turn out nice. And you want to backtrack when things turn out not nice. So, four phases. Pay particular attention to the phase of disappearing. Habitually, evolutionary psychology can tell us that we focus on things arising. Our involuntary attention is geared to pick up on arising things. Anything that arises is easier to attend to than anything that gradually disappears. Why is this? Because things arising may have an impact on our life. The old pattern is very simple. If something arises, is it going to eat me? Can I eat it? Can I mate with it? Yeah, those would be sort of the primate questions. Um, as meditators, you've toned that down a little bit, hopefully. Yeah, you've acknowledged that this is fairly safe here. Yeah, most of the things are not out to eat you here. I I hope you're reining in your impulses to eat particularly living beings here. Uh, it's really discouraged. Um, Mating also is off is not an option here. So uh, we have probably found um, that this pattern still applies to us. You know, is this dangerous? Am I safe? Yeah, maybe the question. Yeah, can I do this? Um, is this person in some way uh, attractive to me? Do I like being there? Do I wish to associate here? Yeah. Or. What can I get from this situation? Yeah, that would be the mating equivalent. Oh, something's running around there. Speaking of animals, we'll need to escort him. Huh? So the question, uh, you know, the the third, the primating, the mating question for for the meditator probably translates into something like, what can be gained? What is the possible gratification from this situation here? So these, these are pretty deep into our ground, into our system. They're really, the movement is hardwired. The particular formulation of the question is not, but the movement is hardwired. So take note of such questions. Take note when uh, the mind moves, when you discern any, anything connected with, say, 
something happens and your, your immediate moment is <gasps> a little bit of this, or, or maybe more internalized, say, something like, oh, can I? Oh God, can I? Yeah. Sometimes this is subtle little movements, or movements that say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, right, that opens new possibilities here. Yeah. Or just the mind that basically is hungry for stimulants. We are not neutral, and it's good to know what makes you alive, what makes you interested. It's good to know what makes your mind move. So the arising of things has always been easier for us to attend to. Correspondingly, the disappearance of things, particularly of pleasant things, is not something I'm habitually interested in. It may feel, you know, as soon as things start to wane, usually I'm trying to jump off and get something going that is interesting, promising, that holds some, uh, that holds the promise for another gratification, so I don't have to stay with this one till it ends. For meditators, that means it is more easy to be with an in-breath, generally, because the beginning of that in-breath is something that meets with uh, an evolutionary attentional bias that is geared to the arising of possible danger or the arising of possible possibility. Um, So pay attention particularly to how things end, how a breath ends, how a sound ends, that's easy. How How a taste ends, that's not so easy. Who wants to sit there and just wait till a taste ends on your tongue? Most of the time when we're there, when things are to taste, we continue shoveling, isn't it? We continue moving things in. We're not there waiting till the taste gradually subsides in our palate. So consider these arising and seizing aspects. Particularly consider them in your body. Consider them in respect to touch. That's where we're... You know, where seizing is really quite dramatic. It's not difficult, it's not easy to hold a tactile impression. Just if you kind of touch your knee for a moment, just like this, how long can you hold the, ta- the echo of a tactile sensation? And keep returning to the tone of body, not just to analytically individual, individualized sensations. So try to make a movement from the sensation that may be quite localized and into the space around that sensation. What does it hang together with? Where does it end? Can I go beyond its edge and see what else is there? So it is as if you're enveloping in your attention parts of the body, areas of your body, where you have acknowledged something is happening. You do that at every session for a few minutes at least and then you do seek out the anchor of your breathing and then you practice anapanasati, plan A, plan B. Uh, If you readjust your posture, if you find yourself distracted, you quickly scan your body. You acknowledge what posture you're in, you're using your proprioceptive, your interoceptive senses and then you return to the breath. Try to take this exercise outside of this hall and 
consider bodily tone, consider bodily vocabulary. Often uh, insights arise when we move or they take us when we're, when we're off guard in some way. So make use of this exercise throughout today. I would um, like to sit with you for a moment now. Um, no, another addition. Breath. This is important. We're interested in an intimate relationship to our breathing process. Because of the breath is so um, so such a normal thing, we, we often find it difficult to actually meet it. So I would like to give you a number of questions that may help you. Uh, these are not multiple choice questions and there are no right answers to them. But these questions may help you in becoming more intimate with the breathing process. The first question is very simply, how deep does the breath go right now? What is the lowest point in which, in the body in which I feel my breathing right now? You'll be aware that this point may vary for some people uh, quite a bit. Um, also, it may vary individually from meditator to meditator and um, sometimes this is very tangible and sometimes not. If you do not feel your breath, just put the hand on your belly and feel how the belly moves that hand. Yeah. Don't hesitate to do that. It's a very centering, a very self-caring sort of gesture and you just acknowledge the center of your body, you acknowledge the movement that is probably f felt underneath your hand. So the first question regarding qualities of breath would be how, what is its depth? How deep, where in the body, how deep can I feel it? The second of the questions would be what rhythm? How fast is it? Is my in and my out breath of equal length, for example? Is it quiet? Is it fast? These are good questions. Obviously this too can change depending on your state, depending on time of the day, depending on uh, whether you've just uh, rushed to the, to the session. You know, the, the speed of your breathing uh, can vary quite a bit. The third of the question asks what tone that breath has, how much vitality is in it, yeah. how much buoyancy does it have, or how flaccid is it. Sometimes it appears that we're just being breathed by the universe, and sometimes it appears not that way. It appears we have to do work. So that breathing has a tone. See whether you can find something asking for the quality of that tone, whether that takes you a little closer to your breathing experience. Breath, this would be a fourth question, has a texture. So think of an in-breath as something of this movement, yeah? Is this a silky movement? Is this smooth? Or is it not? Sometimes our breath is raspy, uh, or it has sort of jags, yeah? It's kind of quite silky, and then it has a jag. So acknowledge what is the, the texture of your breathing. 
an in-breath, an out-breath. Maybe the in-breath is okay, but the out-breath is rasping. And finally, a fifth question for a quality of your breathing experience would be, how much resistance does this body put up when you breathe? Sometimes this just flows in. I'm just kind of... I seem to be just part of the universe and I'm being kind of breathed and metabolized by the universe in some way. And sometimes I seem to be doing pumping and sucking. I need to pull that air in and I need to push that air out. And um, again, there are no true answers there. There are only the answer. The only answer is how it is for you right now. And I, to be honest with you, I'm not even particularly interested in your answer. I'm, I'm interested in you asking the question because if the question is good for you, then it will leave open a little gap at the end of its question. And in that gap, there will be deeper listening, there will be deeper feeling, there will be something that takes you closer to your breathing experience. So don't make yourself mad with these questions, just kind of drop, throw them into the pond and see whether some of them will ripple and some of them will don't, will, will not ripple. Yeah. So these are not analytic questions, they are questions that you drop in once or twice and then you see whether that question brings to mind a quality of your breathing experience that you may have not acknowledged so far or that you, if they help, your relationship to breathing will become more intimate. If they don't help, you just forget them. I'll mention them again, so don't don't, uh, be afraid of... uh, having missed one or two. I'll mention them again in the course of the days. Good. I would like to do some walking instructions and finish with some standing meditation for this morning. So, walking instruction. Crucial is that you have a clearly delineated walking path. Walking meditation is, is not a walk. You're all seasoned meditators, you know about this. Uh, the length of such a walking path may vary. What is useful seems to be something in between uh, 10 steps, 15 steps, 20 steps. There are varying schools. What is important is that it is a clear beginning and a clear end, that you stop at each end, and that you connect your awareness with the body at the latest, at the end, and at the beginning of your walking path. That is the moment where you ask the, yourself the question, here is my body, where is my mind? Yeah. Make use of standing. I suggest you scan through your body when you stand still, and you just scan. Maybe slowly, to begin with, just scan through the sensations, check your alignment, feel the distribution of weight. Um, Sometimes that can take a minute, sometimes you can do that with an in-breath. And then you wait a moment, you feel the impulse to move arise, and then you start moving. Your primary focus of attention in walking is in the soles of your feet. If you make small steps, and if you move slow, there's one foot in which dominant things are happening. Either it is lifted, 
or it is placed, it is weighted, or it is rolling, and then the other foot comes. If you make bigger steps, you will probably have to decide on which foot you're doing this. Yeah. So it may be necessary that if you're restless, you either want to choose a pace which gives you a clear sensation in your foot, or you may intentionally slow down, slow down the movement, so as to modulate your experience. Think of walking meditation as as valuable as sitting meditation. It's a, a strange side effect of Western meditation approaches that the sitting somehow becomes meditation and walking becomes the bit you do in between the real meditation. Um, Thai forest tradition, for example, has it the other way around. Many forest monasteries see the major practice in walking, jongrom, up and down. Many monasteries have nice walking meditation path, carefully kept, carefully built, um, carefully lit. Um, if you want to judge a monk, then you go and look at his walking meditation path. You know, how clean is it? How well used is it? Uh, so, um, in sitting, you stand. You have the eyes closed. You have the maximum stability and the minimum sensory impact. In walking, obviously, this is different. I do hope you have your eyes open when you walk. Um, that means you have visual impressions and you have motor sensations because you keep moving. So, the input of sensory, of the sensory world is obviously bigger in, in walking than in sitting. And sometimes people feel that this is detrimental to their sense of stillness. But do not underestimate what you cultivate in walking. In walking, you cultivate the type of fluid attention that is much closer to your everyday life situations. It's a type of attention that when you manage to sustain it on a chosen object, is a lot more resilient than the type of attention you develop when sitting. It can withstand more sensory impingements. So there is a powerful strength that can be developed in walking that is more difficult to develop in sitting, even though the sitting may subjectively feel stiller or more controlled. So I'd ask you to take uh, walking practice serious. Make sure that you um, establish a clear path and that you do not stomp up and down, but that you stop. If you feel that things are too complex, slow down, even stand for a moment. And touch sensations in your feet are your primary object. Yeah. You don't need to do um, a slow motion, uh, meticulous labeling number, although that can help. Yeah. It can help to identify four or six phases in the walking procedure and label those, but I would not make this necessary uh, as a medita walking meditation practice. I'd like you to connect in a as possibly fluid way with the sensation, with the change in the sensation of your feet. So when you sit, you're using the change in the sensations of your breath. When you walk, it's the change in the sensation of your feet. Good.
Let's do some standing. Try to adopt a stance that is somewhere in between your hips and your shoulder width. And although you, you're trying to entrust your weight to the ground and to relax as much as possible while standing up, which is technically not a Tai Chi stand or a Qigong stand. So <coughs> You're not there with bent knees, but you're actually looking for an anatomical position for your knees that is neutral, so that they are neither bent nor locked. Yeah. That only works if you distribute the weight over the entire length of your feet. Preferably both feet carry the same amount of weight. Uh, this would be a first question, you know. Many of us find that we're actually um, not symmetrical, both in the way we look, in the way we use our bodies, in the way we feel our bodies. And instead of berating us for these asymmetries, we're actually making use of the asymmetry and sensing the difference because our attention finds it easier to cope with difference than with similarity. Nevertheless, we try to distribute the weight of the feet, uh, the weight of the body evenly onto both our feet, and we particularly make sure that our heels work. And then imagine you're being slightly pulled upwards from the top of your cranium. Imagine you're being a string puppet pulled up. So you feel as if you were very, very gently placed onto your feet from above. Huh? <coughs> then you try to feel alignment, you know. Shoulders and hips above knees and feet. The outside of your shoulder joint, beginning of your arm, is above your, your hip bone. Make sure you don't hollow your back. So you sense your toes being gently placed onto the ground. You sense all of your toes doing some carrying. If you're unsure, just move a little forward and backward, sway a little and feel. If you sway forward, just using your toes, 
you immediately notice how hard work this is. Taking the weight off your heels, for example, just leaning forward to see what that does, how that impacts on your thighs, on your buttocks, how that goes into your pelvis and into your back, how much of a relief it is to actually use one's entire foot. And now we're trying to relax by calling various groups of muscles. Toes are gently placed, calves are soft, thighs relaxed, our hands heavy, our thumbs relaxed, hanging somewhere in the circumference of our thighs. Our buttocks are not pinched. Pelvic floor, perineum, sphincters, relaxed. Bellies are soft. Breath widens that belly, is felt deep into the body, deep into the pelvis. Chest is widening. And with every outbreath, we feel the weight of our shoulders pulling a little bit. They're allowed to droop. We sense the tone in our neck around the larynx and its many muscles there. We sense the tone in the back, our neck vertebrae. Our jaw slightly opened, tongue is resting in its bed, our mouth, particularly our upper lip is relaxed, warm, soft. A warm flow going through our cheeks, around our eyes. deeply releasing our eyeballs in their sockets, not straining, not holding, not controlling. Forehead is cloudless. And then we simply stand from the belly, breathing into the belly. Imagine the energy coming up through your feet, along the inside of your legs, into the pelvis, through the pelvis, along your spine. And like a jet, a wonderful and heavy jet of flowing energy, opening up above your cranium, falling down on the outside of the body, removing all tension. And there you stand, breathing, completely still and at the same time completely moving. Breath comes, attention rests in my belly.
Good. I'll be having interviews. I'd like to invite you to uh, join the groups and keep building our atmosphere. Um, so for today, five questions if you want to become more in intimate with your breath. Depth, rhythm, tone, texture, resistance of the body. Today, important feeling body vocabulary and paying particular attention to the disappearance phase in all things that touch your mind. Obviously in your breathing exercises, but also anything else that happens. Particularly pay attention to the disappearance of things. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.